0: Friends, uh, welcome here. My name is Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at uh, Jericho, and it's a privilege to have you here as we launch into the fall together. And as we do that, I want to ask you a question, and uh, I need you to be honest with me about this. How many of you have ever written an email, a letter, or sent a text from a place of deep frustration and passion? Okay, the rest of you are lying and we'll have your come to Jesus moment later. But it happens. You get upset, you get emotional, and you get excited and you tweet or you post something to social media that has some heat to it. Maybe you get involved in a discussion thread that just somehow it got under your skin and you decided you needed to participate. And so you went for that person hard. Or maybe you thought, you know what, I have an opinion about this. It must be shared out in the world. And your fingers could just not fly fast enough across that keyboard to just get all that was in you out into the world for other people to see. So the reason that I ask is that today we're launching into a series in the New Testament book of Galatians. And this book was originally written as a letter by one of the leaders in the early Christian movement named Paul. And it was written to a group of Jesus followers in a region called Galatia, which is in modern-day Turkey in the highlands. And if you read through the book, you get the distinct impression that Paul wrote this from a place of deep passion and frustration. And he wrote it quickly. And it has some of the most dense, most terse, most excitable writing anywhere in the New Testament. And arguably, it's one of the earliest documents that we have written down in the early Christian movement in the first century as an attempt to try and wrestle with some of the questions that shaped and continue to shape the Christian understanding of what it means to walk with God. Questions about ethics, questions about the place of faith in public life, Questions about the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Questions about the balance between faith and works. Questions about experiencing joy and freedom and hope and search for meaning. And Paul writes all of this in a real hurry and with a lot of passion and heat. And so let me set a little bit of a context as to why is he so animated? Why is he so excitable here? And some of the things in the book might make a little more sense if we just step back and think about why he's writing this letter and what is the the setting in the world in which Paul was involved in. And I think one of the things to remember is that uh, Christianity began as a really a messianic movement in Jerusalem in the first century, Jesus lives, is born, lives, dies, and rises from the grave, and Jesus makes the stunning claim that he is Messiah, that he is the fulfillment to God's promises to God's people, that he's the anointed one, that's what Messiah means, sent to fulfill the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to the Jewish people. And Jesus claims that he's both fully God and fully human. And he reminds his followers uh, that the message of God's redemption and rescue is not just for the Jewish people, but it's for all people. And so the Jesus movement begins to spread out from that epicenter in Jerusalem. And so by the time that Paul comes along... A few decades later, there are as many non Jewish people, whom uh, sometimes get called Gentiles, as there are Jewish people inside of this new Jesus movement. But this expansion has created a really big problem in the ancient world, and it sparked a massive debate that we get a window to in the book of Acts in chapter 15, where they're trying to figure out how do these two groups of people relate to each other? Because historically... The family of God had been focused on one people group, the descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people. And what made the Jewish people distinct or set apart from other peoples in the world was their fastidious insistence on following laws that God gave to them generations ago that were written down in the Torah, the ancient laws. And these included things specifically that Jews were very focused on, like circumcision and food laws, and like eating only kosher things, and then observing the Sabbath, amongst other things. But in particular, those three had become so embedded in Jewish culture and understanding that when someone who was Jewish by culture then became Christian or began to follow the Jesus way, Jesus as Messiah, it was so deeply embedded in their thinking that, well, I just bring all of these things with me now. And I still practice all of these things and then now I add Jesus into this mix. And some of these Jewish Christians ended up In Galatia and they began demanding that people who did not grow up Jewish begin to observe Jewish things in order for them to fully participate in this new movement and the people in Galatia said says who why do I have to do all of these things why do I have to observe Torah circumcision abstain from eating pork and Sabbath And some of the new Christians in Galatia became convinced that those Jewish teachers were right and maybe they should do all of those things. So they began to practice them. But some of them said, I I don't know why I have to do those things. Do I have to follow the ancient ways or is there freedom in following Jesus and because of what Christ has done? And so this creates a massive problem in the early Christian movement. And it rages on both sides of this debate. And we get windows of it, or glimpses of it, popping up in lots of places in the New Testament. But particularly in Galatia, it was intense. Because not only was the the debate raging inside of the new Christian community, it was also happening in the culture around them. When we read ancient sources and historians, they're asking questions like, there's a new movement in town, what gives? What do we do with this group of people? And you see, the ancient world was so full of religion, it's like places like India or places like Tanzania, where where we work, When you go there, they're just filled with so many people that worship all kinds of different deities and gods and goddesses. And the ancient world was like that. Everybody worshiped something or someone. There was pagan deities, local ones that you had to appease. And then there were other religious systems that were competing. And then above all of those... The political and religious authorities of that day was Rome, the Roman Empire, which ruled with an iron fist. And one of the things that Rome didn't like was a bunch of disagreement about things like religion. So Rome said, you know what? I've got a solution for this. You all can do whatever you want in your own little religion, but we're all together going to worship and venerate Caesar as God. Everybody understand it? Got it? Good. And so that was the way in which they kept peace, is you could do your own little religious system, but you had to acknowledge Caesar as Lord. But see, the Jews and the Jewish people were very resistant to this idea. And in fact, Rome had invaded them several times and... Local Jews had risen up against Rome and pushed them back. And so Rome finally decided in the first century, you know what? We're going to give these Jews an exemption. We're not going to force the issue anymore. Let's just not make them worship Caesar. Everybody else needs to do that. But the Jews will give them their own special privilege and status. So they don't have to participate in that. And so Paul comes through on his missionary journeys in the book of Acts, and he goes through Galatia in Acts 13 and Acts 14. And Paul stands up and says, I want to introduce you to Jesus. He's from Nazareth. He was God. He gave his life not only for our sins to rescue us from the dark hopelessness of idolatry, but he initiated a new way of life for us to walk in, and you should follow him. And this creates massive amounts of confusion. Because if you use your imagination and picture then, people in a local city like Galatia, sitting around, talking with each other at the local Starbucks, they're trying to figure out, what is this new thing that this Paul guy is talking about? Is it Jewish? Is it not Jewish? And so, one of the challenges that faces the Galatian Christians is their pagan neighbors are uneasy already about this business. Are these Christians Jews? Because there's some overlap, but then they're claiming other things that Jews don't claim. So I understand my Jewish neighbors, but I don't understand these people, and it made them uneasy. Is this just something new that's emerged on the scene? they're disagreeing on some key issues. But it's not really an academic question because the Roman government had given the Jews this special exemption from participating in the imperial cult. And so now the Christians are saying, we get that too by virtue of our connection with the rootedness, our rootedness in the Jewish story. And so this makes not just the pagan neighbors uneasy, It makes the local Jewish population uneasy. Suddenly, new people are cropping in on their moving in on their rights that they've established with Rome. And Rome might look at this as an internal squabble, but Rome might also say something like, you know what, we've changed our minds on this whole exemption thing. It's like a tax loophole. You create it, then everybody claims it, and then the government says, whoa, 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 too much. That's not what we intended. And then they close it. So that's what the local Jewish population is worried about. Because they're saying, listen, some of us can claim this exemption by ethnic heritage and by distinct religious practices, but then some of these newcomers to the Jesus-following movement think they should have the same freedoms for worship. So a lot of Jews did not like the direction that this was headed in. It made them uneasy. And then also, we get glimpses that the church in Jerusalem is a little bit uneasy. They're trying to sort out... What is actually being taught out there in the far reaches of the empire? This Paul guy, as a missionary, going around, is his message congruent with our message? And so, several times, Paul makes a trip back to Jerusalem and checks in and he says, I submitted my doctrine and what I was teaching to the leaders in Jerusalem to make sure. And this document, Galatians, was written just before one of his first trips back. There, And so you get a sense that, you know, there's still nervousness amongst some in Jerusalem. Is he faithfully representing the truth of Jesus' message out there? After all, some of the apostles, maybe like James and John and Peter, spent time with Jesus personally. And this Paul guy is claiming apostolic authority out there doing ministry, but maybe he's not teaching things that we would approve of. Because there's all kinds of chatter about Paul and about what he's like and what he's doing. Some people are saying, hey, this Paul guy, he's, all what, he's just about popularity. He just wants as many converts as he can. So he's taking Judaism and he's just making it easier for people. This whole Christianity thing, it's just that they don't want to follow all these rules. So Paul's just dumbing down or making it culturally relevant to easier to get more converts if you don't have to get circumcised. Other people were saying, you know what? Paul, he never met Jesus personally. He wasn't in Jerusalem. How does he know this stuff? Maybe he just is secondhand. His authority isn't genuine. He's just going around making stuff up. He wasn't with the original disciples of Jesus. What does he know about the risen Christ? And others are just saying, you know what, Paul? You're just upsetting this delicate cultural balance with all of this Jesus talk. Just go away and leave us alone. We don't want to hear it. Although Paul, in many of his letters, would say, it's actually God who's upsetting this balance with the purpose of fulfilling his ancient promise to the nations that all of the world would be blessed through the family of Abraham and the Jewish people. So with those tensions in mind, we come to the start of the book of Galatians. And today we're going to look at four questions that come up right away in the first few verses. So if you have your Bibles or you can turn on your devices uh, to Galatians chapter 1. And Paul wastes no time at all with pleasantries Or greetings In the other letters of the New Testament that you read, it's like greetings to so-and-so in their house and nice to see you again. It's very kind. Paul doesn't do any of that. He just launches into his texting fury. He just has something he needs to say with all of the passion that he wants to say it with. His tone is terse and focused and he's gonna wade in right away. So Galatians chapter one, verse one, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. He says, this letter is from Paul an apostle. I was not appointed by any group of people or any human authority, but by Jesus Christ himself and by God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. All the brothers and sisters here join me in sending this letter to the churches in Galatia. He just jumps right in. He just lays it out. He's already wading into this controversy around authority and ministry. And we can see that he's got this very delicate tightrope balance that he's got to walk. Because Paul himself knows what this feels like as he tries to balance these things. After all, Paul is himself both highly trained as a Jew. He was a strict Pharisee. The Pharisees were one of the most strict sects within Judaism on rule-keeping. But he was also a non-Jew, a Gentile. He was born in a province that gave him Roman citizenship. He was born in a non-Jewish city. And some of you understand this kind of attention of being maybe bicultural or tri-cultural. Maybe you're an American citizen citizen a Canadian, maybe have dual citizenship with another nationality. And whenever you have that, you share and understand some of the unique values and experiences in each culture. The culture that you grew up in and also the culture in which you live. And sometimes those cultures are in tension with each other. And so Paul gets it because he's lived it. He experiences this is his whole life we know from his writings that he grew up jewish but was born in a, a roman occupied city but he remained a devout jew he went to the most jewish school rabbinical school that you could find and he was zealous and passionate about his commitment but then paul has this radical encounter with jesus on the road to damascus where God appears to him in a vision, knocks him sideways off of his horse and speaks purpose and vision and gives him a new ministry and a new life. So Paul gets it. He's lived in both worlds. But Paul does not just say to those who accuse him, you know what? I'm kind of, I don't know if you've heard, but I'm kind of a big deal in missionary circles. Uh, I've, I've suffered a lot. You should really pay attention to that. I've met Jesus personally. It was quite a dramatic encounter, you know. So all of that opposition you have to my message and my ministry, you just need to stuff it, guys. He doesn't say that. He reminds his readers that his authority actually doesn't come from human authority. But he also subjects himself to and lives amongst a community of people. In other words, he balances his sense of apostolic calling and authority with the voice and the authorization of the community. Because what happens is when people start claiming all kinds of apostolic authority for their teaching, oh, God showed me this, God taught me that, and they don't submit it to a community discernment process, it can get off track and off balance. We see this all the time in Tanzania. People are always handing me business cards that they're an apostle, which really means they have, in Tanzania, what's called a personal ministry, which really means they could not get along or agree with any other Christian denomination, so they started their own. That's what apostolic authority can mean. But Paul says, you know what, I'm going to remind you that I do have authority, but... I'm also saying to you that what I'm teaching and writing is under the guidance of a community. It's coming from a group of people to a group of people, brothers and sisters. And in our structure here at Jericho, leaders and teachers in the church are those under authority. I'm under the authority of our elders board. And our elders board is under the authority of our denomination. And we have a great relationship with those in the Mennonite brethren denomination. And so we work together together. And strike that balance. And oftentimes life together in a denominational family is complicated and messy. And not always super awesome and fun. Because you disagree about things. But we work together and submit mutually to each other. And Paul, even though he has this direct revelation from God. And an experience with God. He also locates that within The saving work that God has been doing in history. Paul doesn't sort of just say, listen, you may not have heard there's new things going on around here, Jews and Gentiles living together in wonderful glorious harmony, so we're getting rid of all that happened and went before us. He's quick to point out his teaching and his ministry is not new, but that God has always had it in God's plan to include the nation's in the family of God. So let's keep reading, and we're going to see why Paul is so passionate about this. Let's look at Galatians chapter 1, 3 to 5. Galatians 1, 3. May God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Jesus gave his life for our sins, just as God the Father planned continuity in order to rescue us from this evil world or the present age, other translations say, in which we live. All glory to God forever and ever. Amen. See, one of the central questions that the New Testament is working out the implications of is... The event, the Jesus event. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus live? Why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus rise again from the grave? And sometimes when we focus on particular questions like why did Jesus die, the traditional answer I heard growing up was something along the lines of Jesus died so you can go to heaven when you die. And while that is certainly true, it's radically insufficient to describe the full totality of what Jesus accomplished, to bear witness to the full biblical witness of the radical nature of God's gift. That's just one part of. What we come to call the gospel. That treats salvation, when we think about it that way, it can lead to treating salvation like Willy Wonka's golden ticket. I got one, I'm in. The gates of the factory will open up one day, I'll just waltz in, plap down my golden ticket, and say thank you very much. But see, salvation is about so much more than that. If we focus only on that, it's like a transaction. That happened at a moment in time, and then doesn't matter what happens after that, you just, as long as you quote unquote prayed the prayer, then somehow you'll get in. But look at already how much broader and richer and deeper an answer to this question gives. Paul gives in just a few short verses in Galatians. Why did Jesus die? One reason why Jesus died is so the barriers between God and us can be broken. The curse of sin, that Christmas carol that says he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Because of what Christ has accomplished, God's grace and God's peace can flow into your life and my life. The veil, when Jesus died, was torn, ripped, apart as a symbol of this, that that barriers between God and humanity have been eradicated, and this is part of God's good news. And that's why Paul is insistent on using relational language to describe what has happened. When anyone becomes part of the Jesus movement, the church, they are declaring, Paul says, God is their father in heaven. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, you're going to refer to God in a way that might shock you. It's father, a relational language. So Paul says, this is a family. You're becoming part of something that is relationally oriented. And one of the glorious but messy and complicated things is that we are family here at Jericho with those At Mufti House, we are family together, joined by Jesus as the head of the church. And so what happens is all through the ages and all over the globe, people who have nothing else in common with each other are all part of God's family. And so obstacles that would keep others apart in community have been removed. See, we may not share cultural backgrounds with people in different parts of the globe that name the name of Jesus, but we share their spiritual DNA. We're one in Christ. And that's one thing that motivates us to work not just here locally but also globally. And here at Jericho, also we have people from all kinds of different backgrounds different social backgrounds, different racial backgrounds, different economic backgrounds, different political persuasions. And outside of this community of faith, you might have nothing else in common with some of those people. And yet we are united together in God's family because of what Christ has done. We are one. And Paul's going to use most of the real estate left in the book of Galatians to explain why this Jew Christian thing is not some newfangled idea, but rather the fulfillment of God's long ago promises and plans. Because Jesus died so that we could become people of God's new age. When Jesus teaches his followers to pray, he says, Pray like this. God, would your kingdom come not far off in the distant future? Would it come now, come here, on earth as it is in heaven? In other words, the kingdom of heaven, because of what Jesus has done, is breaking in in the here and now. And the prevailing worldview in Paul's day by philosophers, if you read Plato or Plutarch, uh, is that their world was divided into two eras, two ages the present age which they looked around them and said you know what there's a lot of not great stuff happening in the world wars rumors of wars natural disasters all kinds of things and so philosophers of paul day said this age is kind of messed up it's the present evil age because we're definitely not living in the age to come and paul strikes right at the heart of this argument and says, listen, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have actually been, chapter 1, verse 3, rescued from the present evil age. The New International Version and others use that phrase, even though we still live in it. Paul is saying that because of Jesus, a new way of living in the present age has become possible. And that's why he gets so upset with the false teachers that have come to Galatia. They're suggesting that in order to be properly Christian or a real Christian, you must first become properly Jewish. And listen to Paul's passion around this in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. Paul says to the Galatians, I am shocked that you're turning away so soon from God who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You're following a different way that pretends to be the good news. But it's not the good news at all. You're being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. Let God's curse fall on anyone, including us or even an angel from heaven who preaches a different kind of good news from the one that we preach to you. I say it again, what we've said before. If anyone preaches any other good news other than the one you welcome, that person should be cursed. He's pretty amped up. Paul is agitated, and it's important to understand that for Paul, this is not just about a few cultural differences between Jews and non-Jews. And if we could just sort of get everybody to kind of work together, overlook some of those differences, they'd get along in loving harmony to the church. Because the false teachers are suggesting that Jesus' work was not applicable to Gentiles or non-Jews at all. They were saying, in effect, there's only one doorway to come through, and it's our doorway, and we get to guard it and set the rules for it. They're suggesting that you could observe and benefit from it only so much as you became full participants in Jewish culture. No circumcision, no food law, no Sabbath observance, no Jesus for you. And Paul has begun working so hard. He's committed his life to breaking down barriers. And the Spirit is being poured out on Gentiles time and time and time again. Peter's trip to Cornelius' house and in Jerusalem it's happening. And then wherever Paul goes, we get witness of people coming to saving faith and God's Spirit filling them. And Paul is seeing this firsthand and he's determined not to go back. And he says, you know what? If Messiah Jesus' work was only for the Jews, really what you're saying is the power of the old age has not actually been broken and the life of the new age has not really been launched because the only way in is through rule keeping. And so this is why Paul says this is not just a little tweak, just a minor alteration to an alternative theory to the gospel, he says you are turning away from God. You are rejecting the gift of Christ. And then if you want to do that, what you're left with is two different messages for two families. And that is strong language, and Paul will have none of that. Paul says, if you want to go down that route, you are, you are deserting the grace that Christ has offered you. You are turning away from the gospel, the message about Christ. And if you want to make this about cultural observances, that is not the gospel at all. Whatever you have at that point, you do not have Christ. And we're going to see Paul's argument fleshed out further and further in the weeks to come. But Paul is saying in no uncertain terms, Jesus is for everyone, not just for those who are Jewish. Now, you might say, okay, Brad, that's all very interesting, but what in the world does an argument from 20 centuries ago have to do with my life in suburban Vancouver today? Well, I'm glad you asked. I want to lay out a few implications. You didn't ask, but, you know, we'll keep (laughs) jogging. Let me lay out a few implications of Paul's argument for us. And they really center around how do you define this thing called the gospel? What exactly is the good news which Paul is so concerned about that's gotten polluted or confused. Look at some of the language in this text. Paul reminds us that the gospel is something that we receive and we welcome. We don't invent it. We don't get to tinker with it. And in his mercy, it is God's gospel that God, in God's mercy, invites and calls people into to be a part of God's family. And so we can receive it. We can welcome it. But we are not the gospel's gatekeepers or origin. The gospel does not need a coalition to defend it. It doesn't need authoritarian tactics to market it. The gospel is about the fact that we were trapped under the oppressive powers of the present evil age, unable to save or rescue ourselves, but because of God's eternal love for you and for me, God sent Jesus and God opened up a way for you and I and all people to become part of God's family, and God sets the ground rules for how entrance in the family works. We don't get to tinker with that. Sometimes people get very amped up about specific theories of atonement or that you have to understand the gospel in a certain kind of way. And in our time in Galatians, is going to remind us that the gospel is not about human initiatives and planning. And therefore, you don't get to set the rules for a family that you're not the head of. God calls, God invites, and we can receive and welcome the message, but we are not to stand at the gate and say whether people can come in or not. And sometimes this is hard for us, especially if you've been around Christianity or a church for a long time, because we just like to know who's in and who's out. We like the notions of external trappings that give us clues for who's a Christian and who's not a Christian. We look for things, because that's just human nature. So we think, huh, did they have their Bible under their arm when they came through the doors today? Hmm, maybe it's on their phone, I'll give them that. Or, wow, when they were praying, did they say the right words? Or... Sometimes in history, and even within our Mennonite brethren family, hmm, do they have the right last name? <laughs> Galatians reminds us, God has one family, not two, so people do not need to embrace external cultural practices to find and follow God. This has been a challenge throughout history. Spiritual colonialism, rampant. And we live with some of this legacy today. Think about our First Nations brothers and sisters who were forced to become white and adopt cultural practices in order for them to become Christians or to be seen as Christians. And Paul would say in Galatians, this should not be. We don't need to put up additional barriers to the gospel. We don't need to insist that people dress a certain way in order for them to attend Jericho. We don't need to insist on their kids behaving a certain way or raise their hands at the right times in worship or read a certain translation of the Bible or not wear hats in the auditorium. Whatever other trappings or barriers we might put up, subtly or not so subtly, we have to remember to keep the gospel at the center, not culture or subculture at the center and then put a gospel fence around it. Now, we're always going to be diverse in our beliefs and in our expressions, but we are still one in Christ because we've received the same grace and the same peace from the same Father. And this is not only true, Paul's going to argue, within the family, but also for all of humanity because the message of Messiah Jesus is not just for Jews, not just for Christians. The message is of good news of great joy that shall be for all people. And so Paul insists God's good news is for all people. And we are Christ's servants. We're called to declare it. We're called to share it freely for we don't own it or manage it. Paul says that he preached, he declared the message and you and I are called to do the same thing. I find it deeply challenging in our day and time by the fact that something so precious as the hope and freedom and liberty that we enjoy in Christ, I feel nervous about talking about with my new next-door neighbors. But these verses remind and challenge me again that I'm invited to declare and proclaim that this is indeed good news that Jesus gave his life so you and I could be rescued from hopelessness and pain and brokenness in this present world. Not just that God... Love extends to you, but the world, it's so powerful to remind me to be bold and to be liberal in my sharing of God's love. Maybe for you, that's a challenge. Our youth are going to start in uh, to a Bible reading plan, and Pastor Mike's challenging them to post what they're learning online. That's going to be a stretch for some. Not posting cheesy Christian stuff, memes. But to learn how to declare and explore your faith in a public context. Pray and ask God for boldness and faith. It's hard to do well. Ron and the worship team are going to come. And I want to ask us to pause and think and reflect for a few minutes. Are there any barriers that you or I have put up in relationship to the gospel? Maybe you're here today, and for you, in your own lived experience, you've said, you know what, I, I am resistant to this whole message of Jesus thing. I don't, I'm a skeptic. I'm, I'm questioning. I'm inquiring. And maybe for you, that's a barrier that you've put up. You've said, until I get all my questions answered, I'm not going to say yes to Jesus. But maybe, just maybe, God, by God's Spirit, has been touching and warming your heart. And you need to say yes by faith and receive and live into the great promises that God has given. And the way that you would do that is by praying. We have our prayer teams that are available at the back. Allie and Katie and Sylvia. And myself will be available and we'd love to pray with you and lead you in an exploration of that journey and really what that is is acknowledging the truth of what is declared in this text that the stranglehold of sin has been broken and that those who belong to God's family though we will still wrestle with sin have undergone and been brought into a new relationship with Christ and maybe today for you a barrier is You say, you know what, Brad, I'm a Christian, but I wrestle and I struggle under a weight of guilt and shame. I just feel like I can never measure up. I've done things this week that I know are offside in my relationship with God. And for you, you've just said that's unforgivable and I don't think I could go further in my relationship with Jesus. Friend, that's not true. There is grace and there is mercy for you. That burden that you carry is not one that you're designed to carry. And so I wanna invite you to just think about, are there any barriers for you in your own experience, in your own thoughts, or in your own attitudes and actions towards others that might, you might be putting up in your mind and in your heart? Maybe subtly, you treat other people differently if they don't share the same convictions as you. Ask God to just show you, how are we gonna to live together in this family? and ask God to bring areas of conviction into your heart and life that you too would be able to receive and live in God's wonderful grace. I'm gonna invite you to stand with me and we'll respond in worship if you're able to stand. Ron and the team will lead us. Our prayer team is available at the back and we just remind you to take advantage of that.